Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. We are in the middle of a series. We're really in a series in a series, okay? The series that we're in, we're, we're doing a series on prayer. We're looking at the whole concept of prayer, uh, intercession, and, and uh, I really want to I want to develop a theology of prayer because it's my premise. I am proposing to you that a lot of people don't pray because their theology undermines their motivation to do so. They believe that God is in control and God, everything that happens is God's will and God's going to do what God's going to do. So why do we, and why do we waste our time praying anyway? And they try to motivate themselves to pray out of obedience because they know the word says to pray, but it's really hard to keep themselves engaged because they think it really isn't going to matter in the end. Now, they may not say that, but if you really push and dig down, there's a disconnect subconsciously under the surface that they don't really understand why they should pray and why that's going to make a difference. And so our theology can actually sabotage our lifestyle. Or you could say it another way, your believing determines your behaving. And so we've got to turn, change our believing so that we can deal with our behaving. And if you are having a hard time behaving right in the prayer closet, if you're having a hard time staying motivated to pray, it's probably because you're not believing right about prayer. Because if you understood the power that God has delegated to you in the prayer closet, you would be very motivated to do so. And so we need to really drill down and, and understand uh, this theology of prayer. Now, uh, within our theology of prayer, we're looking at four different facets of theology. We're looking at our cosmology, our theology, our anthropology, and our demonology. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to really get philosophical here in the next few weeks. So let me, let me break that down real quick. Your cosmology, it's your theology of the cosmos, or how does the universe work? The system that God set up. And we, we need to understand that to the degree that we understand it, we can cooperate with it. But if we don't understand the system that God set up, then we can, in in actuality, we can end up resisting it. We can end up apathetically standing by and just letting things happen rather than engaging ourselves and fulfilling our role, our partnership in this thing called the kingdom. So that's our cosmos, and that's what we're going to look at again this morning. We began to look at it last week. We're going to look at it some more this week. Uh, We're also going to begin to look at our theology, our theology proper, really. All this is theology. Theology is simply the study of God, and all of it emanates out of him. But I'm talking about our theology proper, or our view of his nature and his character. We're going to get into that some this morning, because you can't deal with cosmology without beginning to get into your view of God. Your view of God, every, the ultimate fact of your existence is your theology, your view of God. What is he really like? And so your belief in that area, even if you're an atheist, your view of God will determine every other thing about you. You will live your theology. If you are truly an atheist, you will live a life of purposelessness. You will feel like you're a biological mistake, just you know, a, a, a cosmic accident, and you will live that way. And so your theology is very important. And so when we talk about our cosmology, it really does pull us into our theology. And we got into that last week. We're going to get into it more this week. Then we're going to get into, in a few weeks, we're going to talk about our anthropology, which is really your view of man, your theology of, the, of, of humankind, what, of what man really is. Because there are components to your nature there, are, there is equipment God put in you by design that is meant to be utilized in the kingdom. And if you don't understand that, you will not engage. You won't leverage your nature for the kingdom. And we'll, we'll get into what I mean by that more in, in, uh, in the future. And re- really, let me just give you a little, little foretaste. What I'm talking about primarily is your emotions and your will. 
James gives us a fascinating insight into prayer when he says this, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man will avail much. You could translate that, that verse as this, when people who live right and live righteously pray with passion, the power of God is released. So that has to do with your emotions. Your emotions are crucial in prayer. Your, the engagement of your heart. Jeremiah says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek for me with your whole heart. Passionate engagement in the things of God really do matter. Half-hearted pursuit, half-hearted attempts won't accomplish much. But when you're wholehearted, when you are engaged, the passionate, fervent prayer of a righteous man will avail much. And so we're going to look at that. And then you, you can't really understand prayer. We can't get into prayer without this final component, and that is our demonology, which is really an overarching field of theology that talks about the opposition to our prayers. And so if we were to draw this out on a board, we would have a box, which is our cosmology. And at the top of the box, and even outside over the box, is your theology. That's God. God is over the whole box, your cosmology. And you are at the bottom of the box, praying to the top of the box where God dwells. And in the middle of the box, there's a demonic realm that is opposing the purposes of God that are to be released through your mouth and released from his throne. And so we've got to understand that. If we don't understand demonic opposition, then we'll really be puzzled by why we have to pray and continue to pray. We may understand why we need to pray, but we won't understand why we have to contend in prayer and why we got to keep on praying. And so I really want us to understand this because I want us to be engaged. Uh, Kara alluded to this. Well, she flat out said it during worship. There is an intercessory call on this church. Now, I believe that every church is called to intercession at some level, but there are, there are specific things that different churches carry and the purposes of God for a region. And one of our allotments, one of our entrustments as a church is intercession. But if we don't understand, we will disengage and we will simply sit idly by while life happens. And God is looking for a people that will engage themselves and that he will partner with. He, they will co-labor with him. We are in collaboration with heaven. We have a part to play. In, in a very real sense, I'm not that concerned with the divine side of things with the divine side of revival and so forth, because I know God's going to do his part. What I'm concerned with is what is the human side to all this? What is the human responsibility in revival? What is the human responsibility in the preservation of a nation and so forth? Because that's what we need to understand. Well, we need to understand how it partners with the divine side. If we get fuzzy on that, if I start to take responsibility for God's side, I'm going to end up in despair. But if I refuse to take responsibility for my side because I don't understand it, I'm going to end up in apathy. And so we need to be engaged with what's our part and let God do his part. Amen? Amen? That's good theology. So uh, what, that's what we want to look at this morning. So let's pray. Father, Lord, I ask, God, that you would give us great wisdom this morning. Lord, I'm asking that, as, as Pastor John said, that your teaching would fall like rain. Lord, open the eyes of our understanding and the knowledge of you. Lord, we ask for as Paul prayed, a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, a little bit of review from last week. I don't, I'm not going to drill down too much into this, but I just want to touch, touch base on this. Last weekend, we were talking about how God has, any, he has a template by which he operates in heaven. And so we looked at, there's a blueprint for heaven that gives us insight to his blueprint for earth. Because it was Jesus himself who taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. How? On earth as it is in heaven. In other words, let what happens in heaven, the blueprint up there, the template up there, let it be matched down here. Let it show up down here. We want what's going on up there to go on down here. Now we looked at how God's kingdom, God's uh, pattern of government is we see that there's this unique way that God operates in the heavens that we often don't 
consider. We, it's, it's not something that's talked a lot about in Christian circles. And that is that God operates through delegates. And I use that word very specifically. What I, the reason I'm saying delegates is because God delegates authority. So God operates through agents. He delegates his authority. And those delegates are both imperfect and sometimes rebellious. That's very important for us to understand. Because it really brings into focus this grand question that is at the center of a theology of prayer. It will determine whether you're engaged or whether you're apathetic about prayer. And it's this question, is God in charge? Or is God in control? There's a difference. We throw that term around, God is in control. And at one level, yes, that is theologically correct. Of course, God's in control. God is sovereign. He is omni, uh, omnipotent. God is absolutely powerful. The question is not the sovereignty of God. Let, let me put it this way. We touched on this last week. There's this grand age-old debate between what is known as Calvinism and Arminianism or Reformed theology and free willism, you can say, uh, or the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. Where does God's freedom end and man's begin. God's freedom doesn't end in the sense that God is all powerful. He can do whatever he wants. And see, sometimes people will frame this argument uh, as, well, you don't believe in the, if you believe in free will, you don't believe in the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is simply God's right to rule and his absolute ability to do so. God has absolute irresistible power. Not only does he have that, he has the moral right to do so. He has the moral right to exert his will on all of creation. And there's really two reasons God has the moral right to do so. Number one, he's the creator. What we're talking about is God's authority. You know, the root word of authority is, think about it, author. It's the author that has the authority. God is the author of all things. So therefore, he has the authority over all things. He can do what he wants, and he has the moral right to do so because he created all things. Nobody argues, no orthodox Christian, no orthodox theologian would ever argue that that's not the fact. That is not the discussion between Calvinism and Arminianism. Or those who emphasize the sovereignty of God over above the free will of man. Or those who don't believe man has a free will. Because there are people who believe man doesn't have a free will. It's called Calvinism or Reformed theology. It's not that those who believe man has a free will don't believe in the sovereignty of God. They would believe in the self-limitation of God. It's not that God can't, it's that God has chosen not to by bestowing upon man delegated authority known as free will. And that's a very important distinction. Now you think, pastor, does it really matter all this philosophical, theological stuff? It does. Because to the degree that you believe God is in control is to the degree that you will not engage in fervent intercession. Because if God is controlling everything that happens, it really doesn't matter what you do. But if God is in charge and has delegated a measure of control to you, then all of a sudden your decisions really do matter. In fact, every act, every decision of your heart is an act of spiritual warfare or an act of surrender to the enemy. And so we, we need to sift through these things because we throw out terms. I'll see people say, that, well, God is in control. God is in control. And what they're insinuating is everything that happens is God's will. But the fact is the Bible doesn't teach that everything that happens is God's will. There are a few passages that can be interpreted that way, and, and they are problematic passages for what I'm teaching on. But the reason they stand out so boldly is because they are against the grain of the rest of, the, of Scripture. In fact, if everything that happens is God's will, 
And there are people who teach that even sin is God's will, that God willed man to sin to bring himself glory. Now, I don't want to get too much into the weeds on this, but you can boil it down to this. Calvinism, the ultimate goal of Calvinism is the glory of God. That is a wonderful aspiration for a human being. But that's, they, they, that the, the position of Calvinism is that God, the, the primary thing that drives God is his own glory. Now, before you say, well, isn't that selfish? Hey, he's God. He deserves all the glory. He's the only one that really can be self-centered in that sense and not be selfish. But the fact is that's not the God that Scripture reveals. God is love and therefore giving again and again and again. So the question is, it, what is the primary goal of God? To love and to give of himself or the glory of God and everything revolves around him. The glory of God is found in the love of God. It's God's love that is the essence of who he is. And glory is simply the sum total, the essence of who someone is. And so God's glory is in his love. The primary thing is the love of God, which brings him glory. Not that God is hungry for glory and will therefore uh, create people will them de determine that they will sin and then damn them for their sin to bring himself glory. And so these, these matters really do matter because your view of God will determine how you interact with him. And it will determine your prayer life. And so this whole thing of the, the sovereignty of God, we need to understand that nobody is arguing whether God is sovereign. That's what makes him God. If he's not sovereign, he is not God. It's a matter of did God self-limit himself by delegating authority to others? That is the grand question. Did God bestow upon man a free will, the right to make decisions, and then live with the decisions he makes? That is the grand question. And if God did, when God delegates us the right to make decisions and delegates to us authority, then our decisions matter. They have huge ramifications. And I'm telling you, that is where prayer comes from. That God delegated the earth to man, according to Psalm chapter 8, according to Hebrews chapter 2. He delegated the earth to man, and then he invites us to invite his intervention. Because God doesn't violate the system he set up. We see this again and again in Jesus' parables. There was a master who was going to go on a long journey. He called his servants unto himself. And he gave to one five talents, one three talents, and one one talent. And then he went. And two of them put it immediately to work. One of them buried. And then he came back to settle accounts with his servants. That is a picture of the kingdom. Matter of fact, Jesus in Matthew uh, chapter uh, 24 introduces that the parable I'm telling you about in Matthew 25, he introduces it in Matthew 24 as the parables of the kingdom. He said, in that day, the kingdom of heaven will be like. It's a picture of how the kingdom works. That God delegates authority. He allows you to do with your life what he gave you to do with your life. And you will answer to him for what you did with your life and what he invested in you. And he comes at the end of the age to settle accounts. That's the picture. See, he's talking about the kingdom and he's framing it in this way. The fact is, when we talk about these matters, it has everything to do with your concept of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the message of Jesus Christ. Jesus the primary thing that Jesus taught on was the kingdom. The, 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 the signs and wonders he performed were to uh, establish and validate the kingdom. It's the message Jesus taught. It's the message his cousin, John the baptizer, taught to introduce Jesus. So you can put it this way. The kingdom was the message that prepared mankind for Jesus when he came. The kingdom was the message that he preached the kingdom was then the message he taught his disciples to preach. He told them, go into, go into this town, 
Heal sick people and tell them the kingdom of God has come upon you. Because healing was one of the primary manifestations of the kingdom. Deliverance. It said, Jesus said, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Deliverance and healing were manifestations of the kingdom. So it's the message that prepared the way for Jesus. It's the message Jesus preached. It's the message he taught his disciples to preach. Then when Jesus was crucified, raised from the dead, and walked the earth for 40 days before he was ascended, the only message it mentions that Jesus preached during those 40 days was the kingdom of heaven. This is a very important message so what is the kingdom of God? It is what we're talking about. The kingdom of God, the Greek word is basilia, and we've got to be careful that we don't misinterpret what kingdom means. Because in our mindset, kingdom means a place that is ruled by a person. A kingdom is a patch of ground, it's a geographic location over which a king rules. That's a kingdom. That is not what the Bible means by kingdom. When the scripture is talking about the kingdom of heaven, it's not talking about heaven itself. It's talking about the rule of heaven. The primary scripture that you can see, you can read ancient uh, literature and you see that that was their concept of the kingdom. Uh, you can see this in Daniel when, when it said to Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdom has been taken from you. He was still the king, but he was set out to pasture, literally. He crawled on his hands and knees for seven years eating grass. He lost his mind. He was still the emperor, but somebody else was ruling in his stead. And it says, the angel told him, the kingdom has been taken from you. In other words, the right to rule. It was lifted off of him. We see that several times. But in the New Testament, we see it in Luke chapter 19, where it says, there was a nobleman who went off to receive for him a kingdom. Some of the modern translations don't translate it kingdom because it sounds so weird to us. So it says, there was a nobleman who went off to receive the right to rule. That is what the kingdom is. The kingdom is authority. So we under, need to understand, kingdom means authority, the right to rule. And God is the ultimate king because he has the right to rule. Only God has resident authority. He has authority within him. You and I, the only authority we have is delegated authority. But God has resident authority. It's part of who he is. It emanates from him. He can do whatever he pleases. But he limits, the, the only limitation on God is God himself. Because there are certain things he won't do because of who he is, his nature. His integrity would not allow him to do so. Not because there's some external limit and someone saying, you can't do that because that wouldn't be God-like. No, it's he has integrity. It's who he is. And so when we talk about the kingdom, we're talking about how does God rule? So now think about this. When Jesus said in Matthew 13, remember, he's going to teach on the kingdom. Matthew, in, in Matthew 13, there's a number of parables about the kingdom. And then he says this phrase to his disciples, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom have been given to you. So he's teaching them. He's telling parables and they're all scratching their heads saying, we don't understand what you're talking about. What is this thing about farmers and seeds and all this? And, and he looks at him, he said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom have been given unto you, but not to them. And matter of fact, it was an answer to the question they asked. You've got to look in three different passages, Luke chapter eight, Mark chapter four, and Matthew chapter 13. He's telling all these parables together in all three of those gospels. And to get the full picture, you got to hear what he's saying. They say to him, why do you speak in parables? Parables. He said, so that people will hear but not understand. He intentionally kept it from those who weren't hungry enough to press in. But they said, Jesus, tell us. And he said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom have been given unto you, but not unto them. I want you to think about that phrase. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom. The knowledge, it's insight, understanding of the secrets that we've talked about this word before. It's the Greek word mysterion. It's what Paul talks about in Ephesians where he's talking about the mysteries of the kingdom, the mysteries of God. It's the knowledge, insight into the mysteries of God's rule. That's what he's saying. 
Jesus' teaching in the parables was so the disciples would understand just what we are talking about this morning. We need to understand how does God rule his creation? How does he interact with his creation? Is he exerting absolute control over every detail of life? So that everything that happens was orchestrated by him to bring him glory? There are those who believe that, well-meaning, good Christians, brilliant people, people a lot smarter than me. Their hearts are right with God. That is not the question. The question is, is that what the Bible teaches? This is a crucial question. And that's why Jesus pulls his disciples in and he begins to give them these analogies called parables. He said, because I want to give you insight into this mysterious ways in which God interacts with his creation. How does he exert his governing authority over creation? Because your view of that will determine how you live your Christian life. If you think God is exerting absolute control and everything that happens is the will of God, then the highest ideal is to surrender to his activity so that he can use it to shape character in you. And I could spend hours unpacking passages of scripture that tell you that very thing. So there is truth to that whole perspective. That God is using the hardship in life to shape you into his image and he will receive glory from that. God is going to use hardship, suffering, what Romans 5. Uh, Rick was alluding to this last night on the prayer call. Uh, Romans chapter 5. Suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character, here's the good one, hope. Because hope does not disappoint. But suffering will produce perseverance. You're just going to gut it out. And if you will add to your suffering perseverance, you will become a man or woman of character and maturity. And you will become like him. And the progress that you see in yourself and others see will produce hope in you and in others. But that isn't the only thing that scripture looks at. You see, those who adhere to this idea that everything is under God's absolute control and everything that happens is from God, ultimately that forces you into the corner that God willed that man would sin. And the definition of sin is that it's, it's against the will of God. So God willed something that's against his own will. And it puts you in a conundrum. So the alternative is that God delegated authority to man, thereby giving him freedom to make decisions, and man has utilized that authority to rebel. And that's how sin came into the earth. But before it came in down here, it came in up there. What we talked about last week is that we see even in heaven, there's this idea of God operating through delegates. He has the divine counsel. We see that in a number of passages where God has a council of the Elohim, the, these, the, uh, there, some passages refer to them as the sons of God. Job chapter 1, where the sons of God approach God. And, uh, and, and when Ahab was set up for his demise, God asks this divine counsel, how are we going to lure Ahab in? We don't think of God asking for counsel from a counsel because he doesn't need to, but he wants to. It gives you an insight into who he is. And so God asked him, how, how are we going to do this? And one spirit steps forward, lays out a strategy, said, that's what we're going to do. And it, that's what happened. And Ahab died. So God operates through a council. He delegates authority to them. But in uh, Psalm 82, he calls them into account and charges them with failure. Job's talks about he, ca- he charges his angels with uh, not, not necessarily sin, but with mistakes. So they're not perfect. So we have this template in heaven. God has a family of sons, a council by which he operates. He delegates authority. And some of them rebelled. We have these principalities and powers, these created beings. They weren't created as rebellious beings. They fell with Satan. And now they're in rebellion against God and they are opposing God 
And then we have angels who, angels don't, I said last week, who knew that touched by an angel had it right? Monica would sometimes make mistakes. Job tells us that angels aren't perfect. They can make mistakes. So God, this all-powerful, all-wise being, creates these beings and then asks their opinion and delegates to them authority. And he calls them into account. He brings correction and he has fellowship with them. And it's an amazing thing. That's the God you serve. And that picture of the family in heaven is a picture of the template that he utilized when he created a family on earth. That God delegates authority. He gives you responsibility. We fail. He redeems us. So much so. Let, let, me, let me throw this out. I think I mentioned the scripture last week. The very first scripture in all of the Bible is this. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Two realms. God created them together, so they'll function together. Through sin, those two things were severed. So what did he teach us to pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's wanting to reunite these two things. How, how does he do that? Colossians chapter one. There is this fascinating little verse. Listen to this. And by his blood, he is reconciling to himself all things, whether things in heaven or things on earth. Let me say it again. By Jesus' blood, God is reconciling to himself all things, whether things in heaven or things on earth. The blood of Jesus did more than simply purchase the fallen souls of men. Through the blood of Jesus, God is reconciling things in the heaven unto himself. I don't fully understand that. But I tell you what, it, that demands we have a bigger gospel than a mere gospel of salvation. As if the gospel is simply preaching to people, get saved. Jesus said this gospel, there's that word again, of the kingdom shall be preached to all nations and then the end shall come. That's a bigger gospel than, hey, accept Jesus as your savior. The gospel of the kingdom is the gospel of God reconciling all things to himself. The gospel of the kingdom is through the gospel, he is reconciling all things to himself and he is re-exerting his authority through one surrendered life at a time. And he is re-establishing his dominion. He could do it by simply putting his big old foot on planet earth and crushing all op op opposition, but what did he do? Rather than a, a ferocious lion being unleashed on mankind, he presented a meek lamb that was mangled by man. Rather than the lion, he sent the lamb. And that's how he's exerting the force of his kingdom. One surrendered life at a time. I remember years ago, I was reading uh, something. I, I think it was uh, Napoleon. He was, he was on a ship with some of his soldiers and they were arguing about the existence of God. And uh, one, he, he stepped out and he said, listen, You've got to explain them before you do away with him. And he pointed up to the stars and he said, we, men like me have conquered the world with the sword. He said, but to this day, Jesus Christ has tens of thousands and it's millions and millions of, of men who would bow the knee at any moment and he did it through love. Jesus conquers through love. That is who he is. That is a picture of his kingdom. These, this, this insight into how does God interact with his creation. The knowledge of the, of the mysteries of the kingdom. Let me read you one other verse. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Verse, verse 1, Paul says this. I'm going to read you out of the, uh, this is the ESV. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he stops and he gets into this little rabbit trail, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to be my revelation as I have written briefly. So Paul is, is right about to tell them something. He said, wait a minute, you guys do understand that there was a stewardship of grace 
given to me for you so that I can unpack revelation. That's what he's saying. God has given me insight into these mysteries so that I can bring you along. That's what he's saying. And so he, he, he goes into all of this. And then look at verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, although I am the very least of all the saints... This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So he's saying, I got two audiences. To the Gentiles, I'm to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. To those non-Jewish people, this, this, this unsearchable, it, it, it means that there's no tracks. You can't find it without revelation. And then verse 9, and to bring light bring to the light for everyone. So now this is the message he preaches to everyone. To bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden in God who created all things. The, the ESV says the plan of the mystery. The NIV says to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery. What Paul is saying is he said, listen, God gave me grace and what my, the grace on my life is to reveal to you a mystery. But it's not just the mystery, it's the administration of the mystery. The Greek word there is oikos nomos. It's a compound, oikos, you know, the, the yogurt. It means house or household or family. And nomos is rules or law. When Paul talks about the law, that's the word he uses, nomos. Oikos nomos, and he put them together. It's the, the house rules or the rules by which the family is governed. That's what Paul is saying. He said, God has given to me the rules by which the family is governed. I'm going to show you the mystery of that thing. It's us understanding how does God as the father interact with his family on earth because if we don't understand that, if we don't understand how the king exerts his influence over his kingdom, if we don't understand how the father interacts with his children, then we can't cooperate as he operates. This stuff is crucial. Theology really does matter. Because to the extent that you understand, you can cooperate. And to the extent that you don't understand, to the extent that you are satisfied with it remaining a mystery, is to the extent that you will be out on the outside of things. All through the New Testament, God has this dynamic, mysteries and revelation, mysteries and revelation, mysteries and revelation. He intentionally hides things like he said to his disciples. Why do you preach in parables? So that I can say things and they won't understand it. God intentionally hides things. He does it to awaken hunger in the hungry, but also because he will not throw his pearls before swine. He's not gonna give it to somebody that will not value it. If there are questions you have and you are okay with not having the answers to the questions, I would propose to you is an, it is, that is an indication there's a lack of hunger in your life. There are questions I've been asking the Lord for 25, 30 years I still don't have an answer on. Much of spiritual hunger can be summed up in the word Curiosity. It's that desire to know. It's what caused David in Matthew, in Matthew uh, Psalm 25, where David said, show me your ways, O Lord. That's what he's talking. It's the same thing that Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 3, and the same thing Jesus was talking about in Matthew 13. It's insight into how God interacts with his creation. What is the nature of, of the cosmos? What is the nature? How does the universe work? What is God's intervention? What is God's interaction with all that is? That is your theology. That is your cosmology. And it's what David meant by show me your ways, O God. There was something in David's heart. David understood, I'm a king and I want to understand how the great king interacts with this kingdom so I can be a good king and interact with mine. And there needs to be something in us that does the same.
God has delegated to you authority. And God wants you to utilize that. He wants you to understand how do you interact, how do you engage with him? How do you, how do you rule and reign with him? If we understand how God operates, we can cooperate and we can engage with him. And we begin to realize my prayers really do matter. When I cry out to God, your kingdom come. If God's will is always done, then why do I waste my breath asking it for it to be done? Because God's will is not always done. There are things that God desires that God has not seen happen. It is not, God is not willing that any should perish, but we know that some will perish. It's not God's will. He's not willing. It explicitly says that in scripture. Why? Because he's looking for an intercessor. He's looking for someone on earth to engage with him and to cooperate with him. And we're crying out, God, your kingdom come, your will be done. In a very real sense, there are a lot of believers who are wringing their hands saying, God, why don't you do something? And God's looking at us and saying, why don't you invite me? Rather than complaining about me not doing something, ask me to do it. Complaining, grumbling and complaining and intercession are not synonymous. (laughs) They're not the same thing. Believe me, I've participated in both and one is more effective than the other. (laughs) One attracts heaven, the other attracts hell. Heaven will enthrone itself in the midst of my praise and my worship My intercession, God's attracted to that. He dwells in the midst of it. And hell is attracted to my grumbling and my complaining. It will enthrone itself and it would begin to manifest its own kingdom in the midst of that. And God has given you the God-given authority. You, scripture is very clear. You are a king and a priest. Intercession is based on these two roles. We are kings with authority, and priests who stand on the behalf of others. That is the basis of our intercession. It's this ancient idea. We get a glimpse of him all the way back in Genesis. This strange dude, Melchizedek. He was a king, the king of Salem and a priest of the Most High God. He just shows up. We don't have any explanation who this guy is, his background. He just shows up. He's a priest of the Most High God. Wait a minute. Abraham is just getting off the ground here. He doesn't even have kids yet. And he's tithing to Melchizedek, who's a priest of the Most High God. How can he be a priest? Because Abraham's great-great-grandchildren aren't even around to have the Levitical priesthood yet. It's because Melchizedek is part of a different priesthood, the eternal priesthood of kings and priests. The Levitical priesthood was the temporary one. God has called us to be kings with authority and priests who stand on the behalf of others. David had a revelation of this, and that's why he was able to break into things as an Old Testament figure, operate as a New Testament figure. He could get away with things others didn't get away with, because David lived as a New Covenant man under the Old Covenant, because David was the one who had the revelation. Moses had a revelation that Melchizedek was a priest to the Most High God. He wrote about it. Abraham had a revelation that Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God. He tithed to him. But it wasn't until David, David was the one that had the revelation. Wait a minute. Melchizedek was not an anomaly. He wasn't a one-off situation. He wasn't this weird one-off situation. He was part of an order called the Order of Melchizedek. It was David that wrote that phrase. And it was that, in that way that David saw, oh my goodness, there's a way in for me. Even though I'm not of the Levitical priesthood, I'm not allowed in the holiest place, except that God has a hidden back door called the Melchizedek priesthood. 
And that's why David had the audacity during the interim time between the tabernacle of Moses and the temple of Solomon. David erects the tent of David, the tabernacle of David. It doesn't have the three-court system. They come right up and worship at the Ark of the Covenant. And it was the priest. David funded night and day. That's why it says, come bless the Lord, you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. David was referring to this system that he created. David took the hunger, the pursuit of God in his own heart, and externalized it into a system other people could get in on. And they could come into David's hunger. And David assigned and funded out of his own pocket night and day intercession, night and day worship, where they're entertaining the presence of the Lord. Come bless the Lord, you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. And whereas in Moses' tabernacle and Solomon's temple, there was a veil that stood between them and the, the holy place. In David's tabernacle, the priests were the veil. They were the ones who stood between the porch and the altar. They were the ones who stood between the presence of God and man. And before the presence of God, they represented the entire nation of Israel. They were intercessors. Remember, they, they had the ephod. They would have the stones of all the tribes, and they would carry, in a sense, they would carry the tribes on their heart before the throne, and they would worship, and they would bear the nation before the Lord. It's a beautiful thing. That is your calling. Yes. We're not called to some lowly Levitical thing. We are called to be kings and priests. You have authority. Your words carry weight. And make no mistake about it, you will give an answer to God for what you did with the authority you have. Whether you know you have it or not is irrelevant. You have it and you will give an answer for it. Don't bury it like the unwise servant. Use it. Put it to work. Let it grow. Invest it in the things of the kingdom. Because he returns periodically to settle accounts with his servant. And if you've been using, if you use what you got, you'll get more. But if you don't, it's the phrase, use it or lose it. And so we have authority and we are priests and we stand before the presence of God night and day. And he enthrones himself in our worship. So your words matter. Your worship in all the frustration and all the conflicting opinions about what's going on in our nation right now, don't get me started, all the conflicting opinions that are going around, do not succumb to allowing this powerful, precious, holy weapon called your tongue to be used for something wrong. Speak the truth. Release the reign of heaven. Release the kingdom. Declare the reign of God over all things through your speech because your words matter. You carry weight more than you realize. The enemy knows how much weight you carry and he is working overtime to keep you from that knowledge. But all of this is part of the mysteries of the secrets, the, the, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom. It's how God reigns. He reigns through you and I. Just as he reigns through delegated agents in the heavens, he reigns through delegated agents on the earth. And you are one of them. You carry authority. And you carry responsibility. And you're to carry others on your chest, on your heart, as you go before his presence and you worship. And as you begin to speak his name and give him the glory that is due him, he begins to manifest his kingdom in a greater way. He begins to, scripture literally says, he inhabits or he enthrones himself in the midst of that thing. And then as you begin to agree with what heaven says, 
You begin to discern God's heart, God's mind. You begin to make those declarations over your life, your nation, your family, your situation. God's reign, his authority comes through you. The avenue of God's reign is through the mouths and the hearts of his people. God exerts his influence over his creation by your actions and your attitudes and your words. We need to realize the tremendous responsibility, tremendous privilege, tremendous authority that's been given to us. And we need to carry that. We need to exercise that. We need to be engaged. If we understand that all of a sudden we're more mindful of our words, all of a sudden we're going to show up, we're going to begin to pray. I'm going to tell you, prayer doesn't have to be just coming to a prayer meeting. There's certainly a place for that. There's something about the body of Christ coming together and doing kingdom business. Let's, let's throw some whoop them on the enemy. You know, there's, there's a place for that. But I'm telling you, much of prayer is that lifestyle of prayer where we're walking with him throughout the day, always in communion, that internal conversation. I remember someone telling me that they, they had, they said, they knew Mark Buntain and they said, no, talking to Mark Buntain, how many of you know who Mark Buntain was? He was a uh, missionary in, in Calcutta, India, tr- built a tremendous ministry. Shampa Rice was raised up underneath his ministry. Uh, tremendous man of God. One time I heard his daughter talking. She said they were walking through the streets of Calcutta and there was this demonized man chained. He had chains all over him, chained around his neck because he was just like an animal and just ravenous. And she saw her dad look at him and she said his dad, her dad walked over him and just whispered in his ear and said, it's time for you to go now. And he was instantly delivered. No show, no yelling. He just whispered in his ear, it's time for you to go now. And then just went on walking made an impression on his little girl. But they said of Mark Montana, I remember one time he was in, in the Bible school that I, was, uh, that I went to, he was speaking, and he was in the class I was in, and he was just sitting there. And they said, and, and it, this is the impression I had, and they verified it, that talking to Mark Montaigne was like interrupting a conversation with God. He had to stop this to talk to you because it was just... He was just walking with him. He was in communion with him. I want that. I want to walk in an awareness. Tell you, when God finds that kind of man or woman, he creates an avenue through which he can begin to move in the earth. You, we talk about, you know, people talk about portals. There, there are such a thing as thin places in the spirit. There are open heavens theologically throughout scripture. You are an open heaven. You are the portal from another realm. You are the connection between heaven and earth for God to reunite the earth and the heavens. He redeemed it through Christ. But the way that heaven will be manifest on earth is through you and I. That those that live in communion with them, Lord, what are you about right now? I just want to live there. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand. Some of you saw that Bob Hazlett was in a motorcycle accident about a week ago. Said he was driving along and woke up in the hospital with a couple broken ribs, a couple fractured ribs and just hurting. And uh, he said, his nurse said to him, she said, where are you from? And he said, what do you mean? She said, what country? He said, why? She said, you were speaking in some strange language. And he said, he explained, well, that's my prayer language. And, you know, da, da, da. And, well, later on, she was his nurse. And it, when she was in, in uh, you know, she was taking care of him. And he said, the Lord started giving me words for her daughter, very specific words. And uh, so he just told her to come over and started giving her those words. And it really touched her and ended up getting her saved. She, got, she surrendered to Jesus. See, that's the way it's supposed to work. Your motorcycle accidents become avenues for the kingdom to show up. Not an opportunity for you to complain about your ribs, but hey, why did I end up here? I remember Dan Moeller telling me one time about, this was the craziest story. He was reading a John G. Lake book. Now, those of you that have never met Dan, this might stretch you, but if you've spent any time with Dan, you'd believe it. 
he was reading a John G. Lake book, and he said, all of a sudden, the devil came in his room, manifest, and said, I'm going to take your leg. And Dan said, I just laughed at him. He said, I woke up the next morning, my leg hurt. He said, within a few hours, he said, it was like hard. He's just screaming in pain. He said, it was horrendous. And he said, his wife started to get worried, you need to go to the doctor. And then, then his, his people from the church started coming over. And after like three days, it's like hard as a rock. And they said, you got to get to the hospital. And Dan, I know you got this message you preach on healing, but I think you're just too proud to realize maybe sometimes you might need a doctor's help for healing. And he said, listen, you don't understand. This is spiritual, not physical. And, and finally, he started to think, well, maybe I am proud. And he said, Lord, can I? And the Lord said, yeah, go to the hospital. So he walked in and he said, as soon as he st stepped across the threshold, the spirit of God fell on him and said, see, it's not pride. You were willing to come. And he just started worshiping. And all of a sudden, the doctors came around him. We got to check your leg out. And they pull him in the back room. And he said, the doctor went out and came back in. And, and he said, she said the same exact words the devil said to him. She said, I'm going to take your leg. She said, if you would have come in when it started hurting, I could have saved it. But you were so stubborn. She said, you're going to lose your leg. He said, I looked at her and said, ma'am, I understand you have your expertise, but it's not mine to give or yours to take. This leg's been bought with a price. And you don't, I, I respect your learning. I respect, I, I really do. He said, but this is beyond your training. This is in my realm of training. She said, this is spiritual, not physical. So he said, you know, for his wife's sake, he stayed for like two days in the hospital, led a couple of the nurses to the Lord. And then he told them, it's time for me to leave. And they were so mad. They said, you can't. He said, listen, I'm a free agent. And he said, they're talking to me like I'm a little kid. You need to stay here. And he said, listen, I'm an adult. I understand you're talking to me like I'm a child. I, I honor who you are, but you don't understand what I'm going through. This is spiritual, and I'm, I'll sign any paperwork. He said they were so mad, he lit, drug his leg behind him. He said the next week, he didn't go to church because if he went to church, he said it'd be, he'd be the center of attention because the church loved him, and they're feeling so bad for him. He said, I was in my... The whole reason he told me this story was talking about a vision of an open heaven. He said, that Sunday morning, while everybody's at church, he said, I drugged my leg over to get a cup of coffee. He said, I reached up in my cupboard to grab a cup. And he said, all of a sudden, the ceiling opened up. I saw into heaven. He said, like power hit my leg. And he said, I started dancing around the living room. And he said, I was instantly healed. <laughs> but here's the thing. Now, again, I'm telling you, you ever been around Dan? I, you can't take the guy anywhere, okay? It, he's just releasing healing everywhere. It... Uh, but that was an opportunity for him to release the kingdom. The enemy told him what he was going to do. God brought glory out of it, and a couple of people got saved. And it makes for a great story. Amen. Father, we thank you. We glorify you. Just lift your hands to the Lord. Father, we thank you. You are so good. Lord, we glorify you in the midst of this crazy chaotic time in our nation. Lord, we worship you over those who are sick this morning. Lord, we worship you over Frank this morning, over Gene. Lord, we declare your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we declare your absolute rule over sickness. Lord, we declare your absolute rule over our economy. Your kingdom come, your will be done in our nation, in our politics, in Washington, in the capital of our nation. Lord, in Des Moines, Lord, over our governor's mansion and over the legislators, Lord. Lord, over the, the governmental structure of our nation, you rule, King Jesus. You are the king. You rule. We declare your kingdom. Lord, over our worries and our concerns. Lord, those things that have happened that we didn't want to happen. Lord, I look them in the face and I laugh at them. And I say, King Jesus reigns. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. You know, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is have a good belly laugh. Just laugh in the devil's face. Psalm chapter 2, he who sits in the heavens laughs. And he said, why do the kings of this urge rage and imagine a vain thing? They say, I will throw, let us, uh, let us come against the sun and throw off his yoke. And it says, he who sits in the heavens has a belly laugh. Okay, it doesn't say belly laugh. It says he laughs. 
But sometimes you just need to laugh in the enemy's face. One of the, one of the things you can do most to really trouble the enemy is laugh when something bad comes your way. I've had some things happen the last few days I did not plan on. Ha! <laughs> Glory to God. Amen. So Lord, I just pray you just bless us today. Lord, as we go, Lord, I ask God that you would help us to walk in your authority. And Lord, let us be purveyors of hope, releasers of the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.